Welcome to the Rust Belt Rundown, brought to you by Rust Belt Recruiting. This podcast is designed to shine a light on the meaningful work being done in Northeast Ohio and the surrounding region. We will convene manufacturing executives and Northeast Ohio business leaders for candid discussions about their business, regional happenings, industry trends, entrepreneurship, and more. Now, let's get running on The Rundown. Welcome, everyone, to episode 48 of the Rust Belt Rundown, a production by Workforce LLC. I'm your host, Paul O'Connor, and on this episode, we are joined by Ned Hill, professor of economic development in Ohio State's John Glenn College of Public Affairs. He is also a faculty member of the Ohio Manufacturing Institute, which is housed within OSU's College of Engineering. Ned, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining. Paul, it's an honor to be asked. We got a lot of tough questions for you, even before recording, you voice some apprehension or express that some of them are unanswerable. So I'm excited to see which ones are unanswerable, but I I got a feeling you have an answer. It might not be a total answer, but you have one. So let's jump in. First and foremost, you know, you're an expert on city and regional planning. Talk to us about what cities in Ohio have gotten things right within their cities and what they have got wrong, in your opinion. Well, I picture myself more as, as Most of my work is on um, economic community development and have done a lot of work around Ohio. So the first thing is, which is really important, is that when it comes to economic development, it's not the city, it's the region. So you really have to pay attention to where people both live and work. And that is something that's bigger than one municipality, bigger than a county. And so the challenge you've got is that regionalism just is not a natural way of acting because there's no regional government. So you have to depend on market forces. The big change in Ohio was when Governor Kasich invented Jobs Ohio, gave them the liquor monopoly, and uh, they've actually managed the liquor monopoly quite well. I mean, whenever you have a recession or tough time, sales go up. So they got to benefit from it and invest that not only just in economic development deals, which are controversial, but also in building a statewide series of regional development entities that have very high degrees of professionalism. And that's made the attraction side and the expansion side of economic development work better. There are six of these regions in the state and a state that probably has about 12 national natural labor markets. So the end result is that that's something the state has gotten right. When it comes to the cities themselves, it's a mixed bag because, you know, Columbus, where I'm sitting, is the city that ate Franklin County and is now having its um, dessert with chunks of Delaware County. It can annex uh, Cleveland and Cincinnati, which are older historical cities, are rimmed essentially just surrounded by municipalities, they can't annex out to the exit ramps of highways, which changes the fi- the fiscal dimensions across uh, those. So, so Columbus really is blessed not only with the state's university and large numbers of people coming in for education and staying, but it's also blessed thanks to Mayor Sensenbrenner in the 50s with the foresight to make certain that wherever there's an interchange, Columbus owns it. And if they want water and sewer there's an incentive to become part of Columbus. So an interesting thing is that I'm renting just temporarily in the Polaris area of Columbus. Well, I'm in the municipality of Westerville, but it turns out that I'm in Delaware County because Columbus and Westerville annex that area of growth for the wage tax revenue. The county couldn't annex it, so they, they don't get the sales tax revenue. So it really shows you how complicated this stuff is. It is complicated. Can you explain the annexation aspect a little bit further 
in terms of why that may have helped Intel choose Columbus? The annexation helped in, a, in an indirect way. So it turns out that the thousand plus acres that Intel's locating on is serviced by Columbus sewer and water. So they didn't annex it, but there's a tax sharing agreement already in place. Got it. And that, of course, one of the locational features for a chip making plant is they use lots and lots of water. Makes me kind of wondering, why are so many investing in Phoenix? But that's a different issue. It's <laughs> a good point. So that guarantees high quality water, good sewage capacity to clean the water, um, and it's already in the ground. That helped. But the real reason why Intel settled in um, Columbus, they actually initially were looking in northern Ohio, northeast Ohio. That was the only vibration-free thousand-acre site in the state. Wow. So most very big parcels for economic development have a rail spur or it's right next to a highway. This site has no rail spur. The highway gets the workforce there and was expanded, but it's far enough away so the vibrations for traffic and heavy trucks don't go onto the property. And it's kind of like the trifecta. It's also really close to um, Columbus's airport. So it was a unicorn site. I'm aware of another site in Ohio that has many of those characteristics, but it wasn't owned by one entity and the package couldn't take place fast enough. But here, this is the cool thing about the Intel story. And this wouldn't have happened 15 years ago. So instead, what's the story? How did Intel hear? Well, Intel came here because a county commissioner in Northern Ohio, Lorain County, heard about the expansion, read about the expansion, and wrote a handwritten note to the CEO that said, why aren't you considering Ohio? They knew she knew enough that he grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Um, you should give us a look and gave reasons why. And uh, the CEO apparently went to his government affairs person and said, I want an answer. This is a good question. So, so we um, all, the entire state owes her a, a thank you. <laughs> exactly. And I don't think people knew this. Is this public knowledge? Among the economic fraternity, it clearly is. Yeah. So the cool thing about how it worked is when they came back and said, okay, you're on, and the site selection team and Intel sent an impossible deadline because they just thought this was just ridiculous. Team Neo got involved instantly. Team Neo went and skirt, looked around and said, we... We don't have the unicorn. Team Neo instantly reached out to Jobs Ohio. All of this happened within one day. And Jobs Ohio sent out the call across the entire state system. And uh, one Columbus said, we think we have the site. And at that way, the entire system, including Team Neo, working together to make this thing happen. That is not Ohio, folks. That's the old Ohio. This is the current Ohio. I mean, that's the reason why all of us who are looking at how economic development works are just just thrilled with this one because the labor market's regional, the assets are city specific, the system is statewide, and it worked. And I don't want to assume one way or the other, and you may know about how other states work, but would this have happened in other states where, I mean, because look, Cleveland lost out. Now we, you know, all rising tides raise all boats. I get that. But is that happening in every state where two competing cities are going to call and say, hey, look, this is for you? Well, it's the way the system works. The factor is North Carolina, probably yes. Okay. Yeah, like if they couldn't do it in Raleigh-Durham, they'd call Charlotte or vice versa or something? Actually, what they do, it's a vibrant statewide system. So it goes up to the state instantly. Got it. And because of the quasi-private nature of Jobs Ohio, they'll get angry for me not saying they're a private organization. Got it. Um, and we'll continue to, to quibble over drinks with that one. <laughs> but because they aren't pure state government, the standard politics of whose district and what's the legislature going to say didn't play a role. The other thing is 
all of Ohio, you know, it's Cleveland has t-shirts saying Cleveland versus the world. Well, it's really Ohio versus the world, right? Yep. And so getting that system to work and, and Governor DeWine and uh, the executive director of Jobs Ohio, they've worked really hard to make this system work and work smoothly. And the Intel uh, case really shows it work. There's Fuyao Glass in the Dayton area is probably similar, but that was bumpier because everything was so new. Got it. Okay. Fascinating. I didn't now, know. Now, that doesn't mean that Team Neo and Cleveland and Lorraine aren't saying, hey, State, you owe me one. Yeah, for sure. Okay. For sure. That's all right. We, we could take that. Yep. For sure. Okay, let's transition a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on the current state of remote work combined with what we've seen over the past 20 years or so of that suburban office sprawl, per se. Mm-hmm. And how do you think city downtowns need to revamp their space or revamp their offerings to attract people back? Oh, that's interesting. Here, Cleveland and Cincinnati have been really leading the pack, and mostly because they've got fabulous waterfront assets. Mm -hmm. But also they've been working at downtown residential for some time. I mean, I remember... When I was in Cleveland and we were interacting with with folks civically there, and you know, I did a back of the envelope com- calculation one Saturday for the Plain Dealer, saying you aren't going to get meaningful retail back downtown Cleveland until you have twenty thousand residents, and that's about what it takes to support two grocery stores. I, I took the the distance of the Mall of America, uh, Mall of America, to figure out how far they'd walk. Two Mall of Americas could fit in downtown Cleveland. You need ten thousand adults with money to support a grocery store. That's how we got 20,000 people. And so they've been working at it. And also the Greater Cleveland Partnership has gotten really good at using tax credits, both the federal credits as well as historic credits. And I think there's this realization starting about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer, that classy office space in Cleveland wasn't competitive and there wasn't a return. And housing was a really good alternative. And so I think that everything was moving well until the civil disturbances of two summers ago. Yep. Um, and that really killed momentum. If you look at East 9th and Euclid, there were some small independent businesses over there that essentially lost all their inventory when riders broke in. Uh, the good thing is Heinen's grocery store is back, but you're going to see independently owned suburban businesses are going to be much more reluctant ground level retail. And also, I'm assuming the insurance companies have probably reacted to the losses they took from the disturbances. So that's a challenge. But I think what Mayor Bibb understands, uh, county, the newly elected county executive, Renee, clearly got, has this, is the amenities of the lake and the city and the river have to be fully embraced. Yep. Downtown has to be completely pedestrian and bike friendly. 100%. You may get a, a pass in February when the slush is in the bike lanes. But what's also has have to be there is commitment to civil order. Mm-hmm. That uh, you can't have commercial property being at risk to have this continue. Now, I think that the physical assets of the lake and the river are just, in Cleveland, are absolutely spectacular. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, changing the shoreway into something a little less intimidating, more about a boulevard for some reason stopped. I don't, don't know what the politics were in the Jackson administration. I've been arguing for Burke Lakefront Airport to be shut down now for going on to almost 30 years. Yeah, Some I mean, who, who's flying in there? I didn't even realize there was an airport there till about a year ago. Well, if you want a quiet meeting, just rent a room there. It's great. <laughs> there was a rationale for it back in the 80s and early 90s because the Cleveland Fed used to clear checks. And so planes used to come in late at night 
and checks would land, be cleared, and then go back out again. And checks had to be cleared manually. Well, in the digital world, right, that doesn't exist. Plus the fact with electronic transfers, there's not much paper. So that disappeared. Most of the takeoffs and landings at Burke right now are from a flight school. The good thing for the takeoff and landings, every time you do a touch and go, it's a takeoff and a landing. And if you do eight of them during a session, all of a sudden you have eight of them. It's pretty stupid. Northeast Ohio has an overcapacity of private airports. Mayor White and Jackson used to argue we need the reliever capacity within the Cleveland system and that Burke was Hopkins reliever. That is, of course, nonsense because you've got county airport. Akron-Canton Airport, Mansfield Airport, you could land a damn B-52 at it. Youngstown Airport, you can land a C-130 at it, on it. The Rain County has an airport. Let's see, who did I miss? You've got another one out in Lake County. Kent has one. Uh, Kent State University has an airport. There's lots of capacity. Jones Day used to benefit from that airport uh, when they're doing the IBM antitrust case. The IBM people would fly in and they do their meeting and if you had a meeting in Cleveland, the New York Times couldn't find you, apparently, so it was a good thing. But all that use doesn't go. Now, Now the problem with the land, as most Clevelanders know, the airport's a former dump. Didn't know that. That's how we honored and venerated the lake. There was stinking piles of garbage burning in the 50s. So there is a lot of compacted soil from the dump. There is some methane that could be vented. But bedrock is pretty far away. So the only parts of the airport property that are buildable are actually close to the shoreline. Okay. So that really means the best use for Burke Airport is do what you can where the bedrock is solid. In fact, it's interesting. There's a there's an air services company right near the thing, and their concrete pad is also heaved because of the instability of the soil. And turn the rest into a park. Use a Scottish-style nine-hole golf course. Make it a bird preserve. Whatever. Connect to the lake. But putting airplanes there doesn't make any freaking sense. All right. Not that I have an opinion. Don't disagree. Let's stick on travel. I mean, are we seeing Amtrak in Ohio at any time soon? And if yes, I mean, how important is it for Ohio to get this done? None. It's not important at all? People are treating Amtrak as saying it's government money. It's the Fed's money. It's free money. It doesn't have to make any sense, any economic sense. The Feds will take care of it. Well, right now... The logic of trains work well if people get on the train downtown and go downtown and not have to go anywhere else. Well, if you're in Columbus and you go downtown to where the choo-choo station's going to be, that's going to be near Capitol Square, maybe Franklinton, and I don't know exactly where the trains work, and maybe the short north. Most of the business employment's out around 270 on the Beltway. So is someone going to go drive from the suburban house in Southern Cuyahoga County to downtown Cleveland to get on the choo-choo, sleep, nap, drink, or work all the way to Columbus, get out, try to find an Uber, and then go out, say, to Chase's facility in Westerville? You've made that trip a four-hour trip. And choo-choo, by the way, because of the three C quarters, also somehow, if you're going to Cincinnati, has to go by way of Dayton. So it'd be cheaper to hire free limousine service to haul people, for God's sake. What about the aspect of connecting and inviting people outside of Ohio to Ohio? I'm not saying all of the country is now going to get on an Amtrak and come to Cleveland and then go to Columbus and Cincinnati, but they're also talking about connecting it to Chicago, right? So I I hear you that, yeah, I don't think daily trips for the businessman or woman are going to skyrocket, but 
I think the ability, I mean, you know this, growing up in Connecticut, it was one of the best selling points. You didn't feel like driving and dealing with traffic. You hop on the train, you can go to Boston, Rhode Island, New York, D.C. Except if you had to go to Westchester County. Sure. Except if you had to go to Danbury. Yep, Danbury was Uh tough. You could take the choo-choo up to Bridgeport and then take the, used to go up to Waterbury on Route 8, and that would take you a day. Yeah, there, there is a value to time. And the vision of interurban rail exists assuming away 80 years worth of investment in the interstate highway system. The argument is it's important for climate reasons and CO2 and mm-hmm. all that other good stuff. Well, at the end of the day, travel behavior is going to be based on cost and convenience, right? So a tourist can get onto Amtrak in, where the hell the fuck does it go now? It goes up to Brunswick, Maine, goes through to Portland, go down to Boston. Boston yuppies can get on the train, go up to Portland to enjoy donuts made out of potatoes up there. That kind of works, but the frequency isn't enough so that commuters accept a few will be going from beyond the northern suburbs of Massachusetts downtown. So it's kind of a nice thing. I mean, if I'm up in Maine and I have to take an international flight, yeah, it's tempting to think maybe I'll go down to Scarborough or Portland or Brunswick and take the train to South Station, but then I have to get to the airport and it just becomes another day of vacation. But it's not an economically rational deal. Hmm. If the state of Ohio had to pay for this out of this thing called our tax money? No way, right? Right. So if the answer is no way, why should it be okay if it's other people's money, which is really still our money? Yeah, yeah it is. It is really still ours. I, I, I mean, OPM, other people's money, that's how developers work. That's also the notion about this kind of things. It's not our tax base, it's their tax base. Who cares? Yeah. Be stupid. That's an interesting perspective. Well, here's the other thing. Yeah. If you're coming to Ohio on vacation and you're visiting Cleveland, in most cases, you're going to have to get out to Cedar Point. You have to get out to Sandusky. That's still going to require a car. For sure. I mean, that's, it's a good perspective. We haven't, I, I haven't heard that. I think we've asked that question three or four times. Most people give a generic, they, they're, everyone's worried about the cost and most people give a generic, like it would be great. So it's good to see the other side of it too. Yeah. I mean, generic cost and it would be stupid. Yeah. Would it be nice to be on the choo-choo? Sure. It'd be nice to be on the choo-choo. It would be nice just to go see a game and come back. Yeah. Well, that way you could, you could drink more at the game. That might be okay. Alcohol consumption would rise. That is for sure. Maybe the beneficiary is from for Clevelanders are coming down to an OSU football game, but they still have to get from the stadium down to the choo-choo station, which is two miles away, would be a number of miles away. Yep. Uber prices would increase. That's for sure. Oh, no, they already have. I mean, yeah. if, if you park out by the fairgrounds. Yeah. We'll continue our interview with Ned Hill after this quick break. Welcome back to the Rust Belt Rundown, where we are talking with Ned Hill. Okay, let's get back into economic development. So there's four main factors, community, workforce, housing, commercial, and industrial real estate. Talk to us about how Ohio is doing in these four categories, if you had to ah, rank them. You, mis- you misread my paper, Paul. I read that in your paper. I thought I had that right. No, 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 no. There are five developments. Ah. Each of them are a separate practice. Okay. And for, in order to make economic development work, you need a viable housing market. You need workforce. Okay. You need a commercial industrial real estate there. The pro- and, and most importantly, you have to have community development working. 
The reason why I make that distinction is because most people who are talking about economic development really mean community development, improving their tax base, improving their town, usually local serving stuff. It's improving the positioning of one neighborhood in a regional real estate market. One of the barriers we have right now when it comes to economic development is housing, entry-level home ownership housing, because it's so expensive to build, right? An entry-level townhouse or a single-family house is $25,000 to $300,000. That's a barrier. And when uh, the tank plant in Lima had those wonderful contracts to build Abrams tanks for Saudi Arabia, they had trouble attracting a workforce, not because people didn't want to work there. They couldn't figure out where to live. They were driving from Fort Wayne, Indiana to come in. And cities and mayors in particular have said, I want economic development because I don't want to raise taxes. I don't want to make hard choices with my city. I want the big corporation to come in, land, give me Boku tax dollars so I could take care of the problems and not suffer political pain. The message is you got to fix your city first before this other stuff happens. And we're seeing some of it, but not enough of it. So if the city of Cleveland continues to hold on to pick on my favorite airport, Berkeley Front Airport, because there are 10 to 15 patronage jobs there, they haven't fixed the house. And if they are looking at how do we divide the pie by X number of wards rather than how do we make certain that the school system is working and understanding the school system is part of the labor market, and um, do we have the infrastructure in place to do the new development, yeah, and go on and on from there, then they haven't fixed their house. Now, I, I would say that Mayor Bibb is saying all the right stuff. I see some actions that are indicating it. The economic development machinery, it was clear that Mayor Jackson had fixed that with deep partnership with Greater Cleveland Partnership. But a functional vision for the east side neighborhoods is still lacking. The housing issue continues to confuse me because you, you said it at the beginning. It seems like right now, due to the Fed raising the rates over the past you know year or so, that housing developers don't want to build because it's too expensive, which then only exacerbates the problem that we currently have, which is low inventory. Mm -hmm. And the circle kind of goes around and around. And then by the time the rates come back down, okay, builders are ready to build again. Well, maybe people aren't looking to move because they, you know, they went somewhere else or whatever. So it, it feels like if, if a builder would, and look, I fully understand, you know, it's someone's business, it's someone's livelihood, but don't you think that if a builder took the risk now, it would pay off, it would triple their investment. If they build starter homes right now, they know they're gonna fill. But what is stopping them besides the expensive part? Besides cost? Besides yeah. cost. But they know, but don't, but isn't it? I mean, look, maybe I'm being too altruistic about it, but like people are gonna continue to move here. The demand has never been higher for homes. That's, that's, let's put it that way. The demand is there. People are trying to move to Columbus, people are trying to find new homes, Paul, and Paul, they're not building. Out. Time out. Demand depends on the price. Sure. So if the price is very high, there are people going to say, I want a house, but I'm not going to pay that price. Demand isn't there. There's frustration, but demand isn't there. And so when we're looking at the housing market, we also understand that rates are going to be high until inflation is brought down. And that's going to be two years out. Now, there's some developers who have a competitive philosophy of investing their own cash and holding the land. And just waiting f to build? Part of what they're doing is they're waiting right now for the price of the land to continue to drop. Got it. They want to buy at the bottom and they'll hold. Most developers, on the other hand, believe in our good friend OPM, other people's money. Yeah. Which means that 
they will borrow with the expectation over an 18-month to two-year horizon they're going to sell the unit. So that means they're going to be very uncomfortable, one, in terms of the cost of borrowing funds to complete their capital stack to do the project, but they also are going to be very uncomfortable about our people, what is demand at a 7 to 8% interest rate. Yeah. So right now, um, you're going to see closely held, low leverage developers starting to buy up land or taking options to lock in the price. I don't think you, the price of lumber and other building components, something I, I, I do, actually, I'll be in the Cleveland area in February talking about this, kind of doing an economic forecast, look at the forecast. And in that, I, I look at, at the components of, build, of building materials. They're dropping, which is good. So there, but but then you end up with the other side. Well, we've done a great job of scaring kids away from working in the trades. There's a labor shortage. Mm-hmm. So go go on and on. Markets have to work their way out. And, um, and I think right now, if there was a large boom in home building activity, you'd see the Fed up the rates even higher because they're trying to jack it back. They're trying to engineer a soft landing. So I think it's it's more helpful to think about what are the different components of Ohio's housing policy problems, right? So there is a low-income affordable housing issue of longstanding. And so that's how, how can we build or support quality low-income housing uh, without a massive public housing program. So that's, and that's where most of the housing advocates are, and that's where a lot of the low-income housing tax credits are focused. That was before we had the next tier up, which is now called a workforce housing problem. Mm -hmm. So this is the problem of people who are in modest income jobs, say $15 an hour to $25 an hour. It's a rental market. Rental prices have gone way up, but luckily we're seeing the rate of increase is actually down to about zero right now. Good. Nationally. Uh, the Cleveland Fed's done some great research on it that tracks that. So that workforce housing component really is small footprint, small square footage apartment rentals. Then the third part, which is brand new, which is the entry level home buyer market which is really for someone with income in the forty dollars to $60,000 range. Now we're hearing from Intel that that problem of that entry-level housing, giving aspirations for what they think their housing should look like, is now hitting people up in close to $100,000 worth of family income. So you look at all that stuff. Government can't interact across all that stuff. It means a couple things. We You could only make housing cheaper by doing a few things. One is take the cost of land out of it. So essentially, they have a ground rent, and that's actually what the land banks are doing, except they're giving away the land. They should hold it. Uh, remember, the royal family of the United Kingdom's wealth is all based on owning most of the real estate around London. But if government owns that land, they could take some of the cost out of it. The second thing you could do is build denser. Yeah. So which really means that all those people that say, not in my backyard, but my darling daughter needs an apartment or a house <laughs> – uh, but can't build it here, but I want it nearby, yep. zoning codes have to change. And we're seeing excellent work being done on this in Oregon and Minneapolis. It's allowing things like granny flats, a matter of right to build an accessory apartment, uh, and increasing the density of 1950s to 1980s neighborhoods. 
Yep. And that takes political will. It does. And I dare you to go to North World and then say, this is what we're going to do. Come with all your tires intact. It just got voted down in my town. Just did. All right. Wait, NIMBYism is real. Just got voted down. And it's ridiculous. That is increased density. Then having a product that the consumer will buy at a very, very high rate. And I think the buildings industry is still trying to figure out what's that new high density product. Uh, now, luckily, households are getting smaller. But your other question, households are also demanding extra bedrooms as offices yeah. in the white collar market. Yeah. Okay? So so it really is there's a Rubik's Cube going on here. Oh, and the other thing is there's some great work being done by, by an economist at Brookings on this stuff. It's really um, the increase in the cost of applying for the approval process has gone up phenomenally. Some of Didn't some of that, that is NIMBYism. Some of it is environmental quality issues. Some of it is changing building code standards, but the building codes are lagging. So if we take off part of the regulatory cost burden, the consumers are willing to accept smaller square footage. You increase density, but this is thing going from single family to maybe four or five floors. For those that are most cost sensitive, lessening the cost of the land then you can start moving the product. The other thing that, that we do in Ohio, because Ohioans don't like to increase tax to do something, instead they'll give away tax money as a tax credit, which means that the payment then is is 20% less efficient than direct payment. You know, essentially, are, you, are we gonna continue going down the tax credit road or are we gonna keep the taxes and more efficiently invest directly in the product? Especially from the East Coast, a lot of the appeal of Ohio was its affordability, you know? And I lived in New York before this. I If, if there was one sales pitch for Ohio, it's you can get anywhere you want in 10, 20 minutes and you can park. That's what I tell everybody back home. It's like, are yeah. you kidding me? It's the, it's the greatest city in the world to travel. Does Columbus specifically, or Ohio as a whole, face... Like the Austin, Texas, like, are we 10 years away from being on? You can't move to Austin right now. You can't. Well, I, I, this is something that local policy people in Columbus are, are definitely facing and thinking about. Honda physically changed the shape of the regional economy by putting a growth pole way out to the northwest. And Intel is doing something like that to the northeast. I think that Columbus's challenge, and this is where mass transit does make a difference, is how can you densify the nodes of economic activity throughout the region, knowing that Capitol Square is not the King Pyramid, right? Mm -hmm. And essentially have a series of villages connecting around it. So, I mean, OSU sort of does that. Uh, as you go to the west side of the Olentangy, where they're building a science campus similar, similar to what Cleveland's doing up by Hoffman University Circle, how can you connect those? That's going to be a big deal. Now, I actually think most of that connection is going to be bus rapid transit. As soon as you put, I mean, think about the, how wonderful the Euclid line is in Cleveland. I mean, if there is a parade, bus breaks down, or someone has to jackhammer Euclid, the bus has wheels and so can make a, a one block detour and keep on going. Schedules are much more flexible. And so I, I really wish planners got rid of their choo-choo steel wheel fetish and started paying attention to cost, access, and dependability. In the case of Columbus, where logistics is a huge part of the, of the unskilled and semi-skilled employment base, it's getting those workers the last mile or two miles is the hardest problem. Yep. And, and those workers are on the buy a beater program. They'll take mass transit until they get their second paycheck. Then they'll buy a beater because it saves them hours. But then they're vulnerable if the beater dies. And so there really is a prisoner's dilemma going on 
is will you have people using mass transit for a long period of time to build demand? In Cleveland, both Ronane and Bibb are talking about free transportation. I was just going to bring that up. I couldn't remember what city just announced that, but that bus fare is free or they're experimenting with it. I can't remember the city. Cleveland's talking about it. Columbus had free transit around Capitol Square before COVID hit. Oh, nice. And it was popular. And every kid at Ohio State had a transit pass. That was to prevent staggering on on High Street. They got to sit down (laughs) instead. It was a good thing. Yep. But the question is, how are you going to pay for it? So in Cleveland's case, and I think also in Columbus, 1% of the sales tax goes to support mass transit. That only goes so far. And Cleveland also has Mike White's folly, the blue line, the choo-choo to nowhere. You know, you have to figure out what the hell to do with it. All right. So I'm going to get you out of here on this. Two two last questions. I want to talk about the Ohio Manufacturing Institute and just tell us, you know, what the work that that organization is doing. Sure. Um, Catherine Kelly is the executive director of OMI. And we work on public policy, workforce policy, and increasingly business strategy involved with digital manufacturing. Uh, so Catherine has done a lot of the organizing and tying Ohio State in with community college networks. We do a lot of work with the Ohio Manufacturers Association. You aren't going to see lots of publications because most of what we do ends up being PowerPoints and working with folks. OMI was instrumental in the creation of the bachelor's degree in engineering technology that's at Ohio State's regional campuses, which is an engineering program that connects people's heads and hands, it's not research engineering. It's going back to a digitally based form of industrial engineering. Pretty exciting. Right now, we're doing a large project on how are these sector-led workforce training programs governed and how can they be made sustainable? Because the uh, uh, Governor DeWine and Lieutenant Governor Husted have put a lot of emphasis in employers leading the workforce development effort becoming the demand side of the market. So how do you make that so that it lasts? And so that's that's work we're, we're going to be finishing up this spring. There is a fuzzy in between the major labor market areas in North, northern Ohio that we've been asked to come in and do uh, a strategic, strategic economic development plan for. Can't really tell you where it is because we're still trying to work out and see if we, it can be done. But I think that that will take us March through October. And then my work in economic development also gets gets tied into this. But Catherine is the one where you need someone at the institution who could show up at the meetings and be there. Faculty are bad for that. We don't even show up for class. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) Uh, But we don't need more meetings. And Catherine is a really good economic development professional. So she shows up at the workforce meetings. Uh, We're also right. Oh, the other thing we're doing, it's huge. How can I forget this? It's our main effort right now. We're working with a company in Shaker Heights called um, the MPI Group. And uh, we're, we're working with the Ohio Manufacturers Extension Partnership Program. And we have in the field a digital transformation assessment for manufacturers, which really is a change management tool so that management can really figure out where their pain points are and how they can they essentially use change management techniques to get control of their digital journey, uh, which it's not overnight. It's a multi-year journey. Uh, so far, we've had 90 manufacturers take it. Uh, we're starting to see how they're uh, investing capital around it. The good thing is that of those 90, a handful, maybe about 10 are from out of state. So we're building. And the good thing is the more companies take it, the more the database builds, all that data is protected. But it allows the companies to benchmark them against themselves over time and against peers 
but not necessarily competitors in the database. So it's anonymous. We manage that. We use the federal data protection rules to make certain that those comparisons are, don't violate business secrets. So it's, so it's that, fair to say you guys are busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, good thing is the basketball team's pretty good this year. So yep. so I do take t- time out to watch the basketball team. Now I'm going to, you're going to have to guess what I mean. The women's team, which is third in the nation. Or the women's the team is having team, a much better year. Much better year. Yeah, well, yeah, but the men's team's having a fascinating year because they're mostly freshmen. Yes. Sensabaugh is very get, good. Oh, fabulous. He's like, very good. In Northeast Ohio. And if that group of kids hangs together for three years, it's going to be a great team. But the, the games have been so entertaining. They're fabulous. That's so, it, by the, the way, I ran up one in the plug. I'm also paying attention to the Vikings. Because oh. CSU has got a really interesting team going. All right, nice. That's good. Yeah, Ohio State, I mean, everyone gets hit by the transfer bug, but it seems like Ohio State gets hit more than most. So I agree with you. If they can keep this class together for the next two to three years, they're going to be uh, a force. Okay, I know you have a hard stop at four. Last question, and you can answer anywhere in the state because you've lived uh, in the majority of the the state. But No, no, 30 30 years Cleveland, eight years down here. I mean, that's the majority. That's. I mean, those are two of the biggest. Where were you eating? Where are you eating when you were living in Cleveland and where are you eating now? Lunch, dinner, breakfast, whatever you want to recommend. Hey, it's January. I'm not freaking eating anymore. That's right. Dry January, healthy shakes, the whole thing. No, 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 <laughs> no. no. Um, it, the, the limit is a bear a night. That's good. Yeah, but, but ice cream's gone. I mean, uh. I have a body made by Pierre's. <laughs> And I got to get rid of that thing. Or down here, maybe graters. Graters, probably, I, yep. But, but, but what's happened is, you know, when you can eat limited amounts, then I go straight to Mitchell's. That's all there is to it. <laughs> so Great Lakes and Mitchell's, who needs more? Yeah, that's pretty good. That's not bad. Well, Ned, listen, this has been uh, fantastic. We are firm believers in uh, being the dumbest person in the room. Today, you proved that. Thank you for that. I enjoy getting schooled on a lot of things, and I think you did that today. Well, Paul, all I can say is OH. I know, I know. Listen, I'm an Ohio University Bobcat, okay? So I will not finish that because I believe that we should have that trademark, not Ohio State. Well, you also realize that you were the state's first university. I know. So don't even – that's a whole other podcast. And you also – beat Ohio State's pants in a lawsuit. So it's okay. Yeah, what the heck? I know. That's a whole other podcast. But thank you, Ned. We appreciate you coming on. This has been fantastic. And uh, good luck with everything this year. A pleasure meeting you, Paul. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Rust Belt Rundown. Make sure you check us out at rustbeltrecruiting.com. The Rust Belt Rundown is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and click on five stars if you enjoyed this episode. See you next time.